If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 751. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll, and get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. Uh, we'll see a lot more of that in 2023. This is the last week on podcasting for 2022. So be on the lookout. Now, I will tell you, in December of this year, 2022, I am releasing another class. It'll be another live class. If you're on the email list, you'll get a notice for that. So you're going to want to get on that because the next live class is going to be really good. And it's actually on a topic I'm talking about today. So um, go ahead and get on the email list and look out for the coupons. You can also support the show by clicking on the, C, the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little heart button under the video, the super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way either way there. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. We are only a couple of weeks away from Christmas, so if you want that last-minute Christmas gift for that Brian McClanahan Show fan in your life, get that logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Also, my books are great Christmas gifts. Usually those can be to you before Christmas. So lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review where you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Watch as much of the videos as you can. That makes sure people are going to get it. It's going to be recommended to them. So all those things help spread the show. And of course, share it around on social media. Let your friends, family, people you like, people don't like, know about the show. And that will also help generate listeners. We want people thinking locally and acting locally. All right. Well, as I mentioned before, this is a listener-generated episode week with the exception of Monday. But then last week, I did have a listener-generated episode on Thursday. So um, we are back in the listener-generated episode material. And I want to talk about this very big issue. And it was, it's been raised several times by listeners, not one individual in particular, but several different people. Why is it we don't know much about the North when it comes to things like Jim Crow or slavery? Why are these things not really discussed? And I actually want to start with a statement by a South Carolina professor um, who wrote a book recently on slavery in New Netherland, which of course is now New York. The title of the book is Bound by Bondage, Slavery and the Creation of a Northern Gentry, and it's by Nicole Manskeel. She is a professor of history at University of South Carolina. And she put out a little video, I think it was on C-SPAN. She did, she did a lecture for C-SPAN, um, which I believe was recorded in Gambrell Hall. If you know uh, University of South Carolina, I think that's where it was. But regardless, um, she gave this lecture and she said, look, I was an a undergraduate and we had to do a paper on uh, an artifact. And she found a headstone from, uh, from that period, from the north, that was about a slave. 
and she said she had never heard in her entire life that there are any slaves in the North. She had never heard of any of this stuff ever in her life. And my response to that is, I'm not surprised by that, but it's more or less um, sadness because this is an indictment of the American historical profession. The American historical profession has done a very bad job of Northern studies. We do a great job with Southern studies, at least in spending a lot of time talking about the South, whether it's correct or incorrect. The South has always been viewed as this peculiar other in American history. And that's because, of course, Calhoun and others called slavery the peculiar institution. And when you use that word peculiar, you think it's odd. At that time, um, Calhoun was saying this because it was not odd, but it was unique to the South by that point, and not just that, unique to the world. And when I say unique to the world, Southerners had started to create a system in their mind that they thought was much more benevolent and functional than any other system of slavery in the history of the world. And so they called it peculiar. Now, we could debate whether that was true or not, but in their mind, this is what they were doing. But this does not take away the fact that the North was also complicit in this. Now, there's actually a book by a woman named Pharaoh and other writers, but it's complicity, how the North you know, profited from slavery. And so people have started talking about this, but I found it fascinating that Professor Mansfield, uh, Maskeel, I'm sorry, did not even know that slavery existed in the North. And again, it's an indictment of the historical profession. It's a result of the, of the righteous cause Lincolnian myth of America, that you had this pure... Uh, pure North against an evil South, that you had this stark dichotomy in America between one section that was one way and one section that was the other way. And it doesn't take into account the complex legacy of a lot of different things, North and South, including the history of slavery and also of race in the North. We know, for example, if you read Eric Foner, all you have to do is read Eric Foner, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, and Eric Foner is not a pro-Southern ideologue, he talks about the impact of racism on the West. You know, David Wilmot, who wrote the famous Wilmot Proviso in 1846, which would have prohibited the introduction of slavery in any territory acquired from the war with Mexico, made some pretty racist statements. And he said the reason that he wanted to do this is to keep blacks out of the West. He wanted the Western territories to be the home of free white people alone. And so there was a racial element to the northerners who wanted to stop the expansion of slavery. They wanted these territories for white people, white Americans, and not for any other race of people. And so this is fascinating to me that you have a professor of history that did, that did not know this uh, before she entered college. Now, I don't know how much this is taught in other parts of the United States. I don't know, you know, high schools or colleges and how this is done. I know I've had my own students come to me and say they'd never heard this stuff before in high school and that we have uh, this very stilted and slanted version of American history that again comes from this righteous cause mythology. It really is sad that the historical profession has gotten to this in a type of myth-making that is uh, detrimental to a fuller understanding of American history. And so I, I want to focus on uh, that particular idea. You know, where did, what was life like in the North for free blacks? Uh, was there slavery in the North? Um, how did these things work? 
We know that slavery existed throughout the northern colonies through the American War for Independence. If you look at the American War for Independence, you had 13 slave-holding states, because Jefferson called them that, or you could say colonies, but then later states, that were waging war against Great Britain. And we know that uh, the British made emancipation a war aim. But we don't really talk about that very much because the United States won the war. You see, in New York and in Virginia, the governors of both colonies respectively had issued emancipation proclamations. And these were uh, violently resisted. We know that Jefferson, in his original draft of the Declaration of Independence, indicted slavery as a, you know, something that was foisted on them by the British Empire. We also know that he made uh, some statements about slavery and uh, that uh, the British were inciting servile insurrections, which was seen as barbarous. So there's a lot going on here in the 18th century in Jefferson's language in 1776 about the institution of slavery. He condemned it. We know that South Carolina was not comfortable with that language and then uh, petitioned very effectively to get it out of the Declaration. But regardless, this was an important institution across the United States in 1776. We also know that the first written constitution coming out of uh, New England, the written constitution of Massachusetts, was drafted by John Adams. And the first draft of that constitution was a pro-slavery document, explicitly pro-slavery. Now, that constitution was rejected, not because of that clause, but it was just rejected outright. And then later, another one was adopted. And this particular constitution uh, did not have any language about slavery. And in fact, it's what the courts of Massachusetts used to abolish the institution. We also know the British, in their activities in New England and New York and other places, had made it a policy to essentially emancipate any slaves they came across. And so this did a great uh, service to the, to the slaves in that area in, in terms of eliminating the institution. Uh, and, and in New England and in New York and Pennsylvania, the, uh, the process was put forward a little more quick, quickly because of British activity in this way of eliminating the institution outright. But we also know, for example, New Jersey did not eliminate the institution until December of 1865. New Jersey was a slave state until December of 1865 in the final passage of the 13th Amendment, or at least ratification of it and the addition to the United States Constitution. So that was December of 1865. So you still had a slave state in the North all the way till the end of 1865. We know that slavery in the North was a process by which slave owners were compensated. It was gradual in a lot of states. Even when they abolished it, it was still in a gradual process. And that there were very few black Americans living in these northern states on the eve of the war. We also know that even though blacks were given legal protection in some cases, those legal protections were not necessarily followed by the legislatures or custom and precedent of the people of those states. So life for free blacks or you know, slaves in New England or the North was not necessarily this happy land of you know, butterflies, flowers, and rainbows. We know that commentaries written in this particular period of time show that uh, free blacks in the North had a pretty hard life, that there was extensive amounts of racism in the North, that um, blacks were not treated very well. They were treated as second-class citizens, even in free states, and that for the most part, until about 1860, they really didn't have any type of rights 
that you could speak of, that they were still treated as uh, subjects rather than equal citizens in these states. So there's a lot going on in the North. We know as well that Jim Crow, the term Jim Crow was actually invented in the North and that you had uh, segregated rail cars and other things. In the 19th century, there was an effort to to uh, eliminate that in the couple of decades before the war, but that didn't mean it, it, it happened. And we know, for example, in Connecticut, there were still Jim Crow cars in the 1850s in Connecticut, and they were called that in the newspapers, Jim Crow cars. So this idea that somehow uh, the South invented racism and Jim Crow and legal segregation, all this stuff, is simply false. We also know that in the North, when you look at people like Quakers, who were supposed to be anti-slavery, and there were many anti-slavery Quakers, and you had them also in the South, but um, you know people like Hilton Helper, who grew up essentially a Quaker. But when you have uh, these Quaker families in places like New, uh, New Netherland, or which is now New York, uh, you had uh, slaveholding families there, and these were Quaker families. And so um, even in Pennsylvania, you had slaveholding families that were Quakers. So just because they had a religious qualm about slavery didn't mean that they necessarily followed the doctrines of the religion to the letter, and that slavery existed in places like Pennsylvania, like uh, New York, uh, where you had uh, you know, Quaker influence, but also the Dutch influence. And so that's what Bound by Bondage actually gets into um, in, uh, in New York and looking at some of, these, uh, some of these cases of slavery in New York. So this is a pretty fascinating topic. And again, something that just is not discussed very much. Now, there was actually, there's a website dedicated to uh, a brief discussion. It's well-researched, by the way. It's not just somebody sticking a website out there and saying, here's my opinion on this. It's well-researched on the issue of slavery and racism in the North. And we have fragments of this throughout a whole lot of different books, um, you know, even C. Van Woodward's The Strange Career of Jim Crow gets into northern racism and northern creation of the institution, how the North really shouldn't lecture the South at all when they were the ones that were involved in this entire process to begin with. When you look at the black codes that were passed after the war was over, they were modeled after northern laws on the same, uh, same issue. And so southerners couldn't understand why northerners would be opposed to these laws when northern states essentially had these exact same laws on the books. So you look at this entire issue and it becomes a comprehensive national quote-unquote issue more than just a sectional issue, but we're not taught that way. We're taught that slavery was a sectional issue and nothing more. It was confined to the South because Southerners had a pro-slavery ideology and Southerners were bad people and Southerners were racist. When we know the entire United States, if you took a poll in 1860, would have generally had the same views on race. Not necessarily on slavery, but on race. Uh, even individuals in Congress who were seen to be emancipationists, people like Benjamin Wade of Ohio, had some pretty nasty things to say about blacks living in Washington, D.C. David Wilmot, for example, another issue. And we could go down the line with people that said things that were vehemently racist. We would call racist today. Abraham Lincoln. Um, so now you could say, well, there was a difference in maybe New England and the West, and people try to do this. They try to have distinctions between different sections in the North, and you could also make the case in the South that there were different views on slavery, say, in Virginia than in Mississippi. But regardless, 
this was a national problem, a national enormity, and the issue itself of race relations was a national issue, not just a southern issue. And so if we don't teach it that way, uh, and we don't look at this as a, in a comprehensive way, you get this peculiar institution in the South, demonization of the South. The South is the odd, the South is the other, when in fact, in the 19th century, it was more like the rest of the world than New England. It's always should be noted that we should have Northern studies and studies of the deep North rather than the deep South, because the North really was the odd section in the 19th century. You can say that's a good thing. You can say that's a bad thing. I know some people would say, well, yes, that's a great thing the North was the odd section. Look at how principled they were. Look at how forward-thinking they were. Look how progressive they were on these things. And, I mean, you, if you want to make that argument, fine. Uh, but it really was the odd section. It's, it's uh, push for industry, for its, its extensive push on free labor, free wage labor, by the way, which... Uh, had its own issues, as Southerners pointed out, and as others pointed out. I mean, you can even say Marxists pointed this stuff out. As you have this stuff developing, there's always a critique of it. So all of these things are complex, is my point in all of this. Now, I want to read a part of this Slave North website. And um, the, the topic or the title of this is Keeping the North White. And again, this the, the website is slavenorth.com, and it's been around for a long time. I hope the individual that owns it never takes it down. And probably what needs to happen is this all needs to be archived somewhere, because he's done a really good job of going through and looking at the primary information that's out there. And also, he takes a lot of this essentially from secondary sources that are good secondary sources. And there was a pretty, in, a pretty extensive interest in um, the status of free blacks and others during the civil rights movement in the United States among historians. Uh, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, you had a lot of people thinking about this. Um, one of the more famous books is Leon Litvak's North of Slavery. Um, and uh, if, you, if you don't know that book, you should go out and get it. But there's others. Uh, there's many others that uh, have been written on this particular topic. And he does cite these books uh, on uh, quite extensively throughout his work on these states. And when you go to uh, through the website, you'll see that he actually lists states on the left-hand side of the website. So if you want to know about Massachusetts, or you want to know about New York, or Pennsylvania, or Vermont, or Rhode Island, if you want to look at case-by-case -case status of slaves in different states, you can find that as he goes through it. And it's extensive. He does a very good job. And looking at this material, and years ago, I contacted the author, and I said, you know, what got you interested in this? And he said, well, I had read Clyde Wilson, who had said that nobody really focuses on the North when it comes to this issue of slavery. And I just wanted to go out and read about it, investigate it, and find out what was there. And the byproduct of that is this website. And so I find that fascinating because here's an individual that just had piqued his interest he thought, well, why don't I write about this? Didn't go out and get a book published. Didn't go out and, and uh, you know do this in some academic journal. He put it on a website for everybody to see, everyone to access. And that is the true power of the internet. The internet is a beautiful thing for information when you use it in the right way. And this is using it in the right way. And so this will stand the test of time. As long as this material is there, this website is there, and of course these other books that he cites are around, 
you can go get this stuff. And it's fascinating that uh, Professor Maskeel is, um, is just discovering this. This material's been around for a long time, but again, it's not, it's not her fault. It's just that there's a lack of this kind of interest in the historical profession because it doesn't fit a neat narrative. Now, I will say this. For all the problems of the 1619 Project, and there are many, one of the things it does is, of course, shine a light on this. And this is where people in the North are becoming very uncomfortable because it's exposing their hypocrisy. And you do have some Northerners who are, well, I'm going to be progressive here, and I'm going to, oh, I'm not, I'm not uncomfortable about this. We were also bad people. But I was looking at uh, Kevin Levine's Twitter feed before he blocked me the other day. And he posted uh, a, a quote from a book, a more recent book, talking about uh, Jim Crow in New England. And this was a fascinating thing for him because he had never really heard this before, it seemed like, that um, the issue, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he had. Look, I'm not saying Levine doesn't read. Um, I've seen his library. He has a lot of books. Now, whether he read them all, I don't know. But um, he has a, a pretty extensive library. Uh, but this was, you know, this new thing that we're discovering that slavery and racism was a problem in the North. It's fascinating to me because, of course, people have known this for years. And I don't know the exact date when Slave North was created. Um, 2003. 2003. So here we are. I'm, I'm podcasting this. It's almost 2023. 20 years this website's been up. 20 years. Now, Professor Maskeel can't be more than in her early 30s. So for 20 years, this material has been free of charge online. And all the books that he talks about were published mainly in the decades of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. But yet, we still have a disconnect in studying the deep North and understanding how hypocritical the North really was when it came to their critique of the South. So I want to read this particular section. It's not long. It's just you know, a few paragraphs here. And again, the title of this section is Keeping the North White. So he begins with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. Race prejudice seems stronger in those states that have abolished slavery than in those where it still exists. And nowhere is it more intolerant than in those states where slavery was never known. This is from Democracy in America. And that quote is often used. And of course, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. Look at all these horrible things that happen in the South. And no one's discounting things that happen in the South. But when you look at it as a national issue and not just a sectional issue, it becomes much different then. And um, you, can, you can actually f understand why someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones would write that um, this idea of liberty and this idea of uh, the proposition nation was generally denied to uh, black Americans in the 18th century and 19th century, even in the North. You understand why she says it, because it's true, right? And this is where the, the Straussians and all of the, the neoconservatives and others, they get very upset about this. No, 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 no. Look at all the wonderful things we did. And I'm not denying that there were things done to try to alleviate the institution or to try to come to some kind of different understanding of race relations in America in some places. But actions speak louder than words, and these in action, these things weren't really done. And that's exactly what the author of this particular website gets into. So he says, in some northern states, after emancipation, blacks were legally allowed to vote, marry whites, file lawsuits, or sit on juries. And most, they were not. So in some, they were. In most, they were not. But even where their right was extended by law, 
often the major white majority did not allow it to happen. In Massachusetts in 1795, now this is after a court has ruled that slavery is illegal in Massachusetts, uh, despite the absence of any law prohibiting on black, prohibiting, prohibition on black voting, Judge James Winthrop and Thomas Pemberton wrote, quote, that Negroes could neither elect nor be elected to office in that state. So even after we had emancipation in Massachusetts, I mean, immediate emancipation, even after we had uh, no laws on the books prohibiting blacks from voting, they still couldn't vote. There was no positive then statement that blacks can vote. It was just left open. De Tocqueville in Philadelphia in 1831 asked why, since black men had the right to vote there, none ever did so. The answer came back, quote, The law with us is nothing if it is not supported by public opinion. So De Tocqueville's in Philadelphia and says, why aren't black people voting? Well, it doesn't matter if they can, because we're against it. So public opinion does not allow it. When Ohio's prohibition against blacks testifying in legal cases involving white people was lifted in 1849, Observers acknowledged that, at least in the southern part of the state, where most of the blacks live, social prejudice would keep that ban in practical effect. So there is de jure and de facto. Now, we know that Judge Sotomayor doesn't really know the difference between those things. But there is de jure and de facto. Even if by law things are allowed or not allowed, there's the, in, there's the fact of whether it, it takes place or not. So in this case, a law against it was lifted, but the fact of it was that it still existed. So you have de jure and de facto. If you don't know what this means, de jure means by law. De facto means in fact. So then he get, breaks this down from the Old North to the Northwest, two different areas. He says, In 1790, the first U.S. Census counted 13,059 free blacks in New England, with another 13,975 in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Strictly speaking, none of them were free, for their lives were proscribed politically, economically, and socially. While white indentured servants often became respected members of their communities after their indentures ended, free blacks in the North rarely had the opportunity to rise above the level of common laborers and washerwomen. And as early as 1760, they had formed ghettos in the grimy alleys and waterfront districts of Boston and other northern towns. In colonial times, northern freemen, like slaves, were required to carry passes when traveling in some places, and they were forbidden to own property in others. Although taxed in New England, they could not vote there in early colonial times, though they could in the plantation colonies. Amazingly enough, in fact, what's interesting about that, in uh, North Carolina, blacks could vote into the 19th century, and then, in a revision of the Constitution, it was prohibited. So um, there are a lot of things going on here, a lot of complexities in American history that we just don't get in mainstream education, which is why you're listening to this podcast. Free blacks were required to work on roads a certain number of days a year in Massachusetts at the discretion of the local selectmen. They could only use ferries under certain conditions in New England. In South Kingstown, Rhode Island, they could not own horses or sheep. In Boston, they could not carry a cane unless they were unable to walk without one. Pennsylvania's colony, Pennsylvania colonies, quote, act for the better regulation of Negroes, set penalties for free blacks who harbored runaway slaves or received property stolen from masters that were potentially much higher than those applied to whites. 
If the considerable fines could not be paid, the justices had the power to order a free black person put into servitude. So if you couldn't pay the fine, you're going to be a slave in Pennsylvania. Under other provisions of the act, free Negroes who married whites were to be sold into slavery for life. For mere fornication or adultery involving blacks and whites, the penalty for the black person was to be sold as a servant for seven years. Whites in such cases faced different or lighter punishment. By law of 1718, a black man convicted of the forced assault of a white woman was to be castrated. Throughout Pennsylvania colony, the children of free blacks, without exception, were bound out by the local justice of the peace until age 24 if male or 21 if female. All in all, the free blacks of colonial Pennsylvania led severely circumscribed lives. They had no control even over their own family arrangements, and they could be put back into servitude for laziness or petty crimes at the mercy of the local authorities. Sounds like a utopia for black Americans, doesn't it, in Pennsylvania? This is where people would remark. I mean, the people in the North, blacks in the North, are treated horribly. They can't rise out of being servers or laborers. There's nothing really there for them. Having set controls on their black residents in the northern states, busied themselves in passing laws to make sure no more blacks moved within their boundaries. These were not elitist actions. The pressure for total exclusion came from the working class whites, struggling for a little bargaining power with the shop owners and fearful of inexpensive black competition that could drive down wages. New Jersey in 1786 had prohibited blacks from entering the state to settle because, quote, sound public policy requires that importation be prohibited in order that white labor may be protected. Connecticut's legislature, making the same prohibition in 1784, had declared that it did so because, quote, the increase of slaves is injurious to the poor. Now, this is an economic argument. It's not a moral argument. It's an economic argument made on behalf of, as the title of this says, white Americans, white people in these colonies, and then later states. These are states now by this point. So it's being done in the name of labor to drive out competition. This is why people were against the introduction of slavery in the Western territories, because it would drive down labor. It was cheaper, it was thought, to have slaves than free wage labor. Now, Southerners would disagree and say that slavery could be much more expensive because of the uh, the costs of it, whether it was clothing, feeding, you know, medical care, all these things that they provided, you know, cradle to grave welfare, essentially. They said that was long-term, much more expensive and economically backward than, say, a free system where if they can't work, they're gone, and you only worry about paying them a barely subsistence wage, and then they're gone. So it was actually cheaper to hire wage labor than it was to have a cradle-to-grave entitlement system or welfare system in the South, which is essentially what that amounted to. Uh, as far back as 1717, citizens of New London, Connecticut, and a town meeting voted their objection to free blacks living in the town or owning land anywhere in the colony. That year, the Colonial Assembly passed a law in accordance with this sentiment, prohibiting free blacks or mulattoes from residing in any town in the colony. It also forbid them to buy land or go into business without the consent of the town, the provisions were retroactive, so that if any black person had managed to buy land, the deed was rendered void, and a black resident of a town, however long he had been there, was now subject to prosecution at the discretion of the selectmen. So think about that. This is an, this is an ex post facto law. We don't care if you purchase this land. You're now, it's revoked. You're gone. Get out. Right? This is Connecticut. This is Connecticut. This isn't South Carolina or Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi. This is Connecticut. 
And in fact, there's a, there was a book written about black property owners in the South, pretty extensive book that found a lot of evidence of black property owners all throughout the South, whereas you didn't have so many in the North. You didn't have so many blacks to begin with, but you didn't have so many in the North. Massachusetts in 1788 prescribed flogging for non-resident blacks who stayed more than two months. Less than four months after its congressmen voted against the restrictions on black settlements in the Missouri Compromise, Massachusetts set up a legislative committee to investigate such legislation for its own sake. From 1813 to 1852, Pennsylvania was constantly debating exclusion under pressure of petitions from the counties along the Mason-Dixon line. So, Massachusetts congressman says there's no restrictions on black settlement in Missouri, but we're going to have a Massachusetts is going to consider this in its own state. I mean, think about the hypocrisy here. Pennsylvania was trying to prohibit blacks from moving into the state um, for 40 years. Like the black codes of the South and Midwest in the 19th century, enforcement of northern colonial race laws was selective, and their real value lay in the harassment and discouragement of further settlement, and in being a constant reminder to free blacks that their existence was pre uh, precarious and dependent on white toleration. Across and o'er such laws were the sword hung above the heads of a whole black population. Step out of line, make one false move, and you could be shipped out or sold into slavery. You wouldn't have the right to face your white accuser in court as you would in, say, antebellum Louisiana. It comes close to the gist of what makes slavery itself, however physically comfortable, always worse than freedom, however miserable. Many southern slaves, perhaps the mass of them, lived better than most northern industrial laborers when you quantify their work requirements, nutrition, and life expectancy. But the slave could be at any moment, with no recourse, stripped, beaten, whipped, violated, and sold. That could be embraces all the evil of slavery. And this is true. I mean, this is, this is a, a fine point to make about what the actual problem with slavery was. When you look at simple material conditions, which Southerners would rely on most of the time, they could make a pretty convincing case that slave labor, in terms of material conditions and workload, was better than free wage labor. But when you account for the mental punishment of the institution, the fact that there was your, your life was not your own and that you could be subject to violence or penalty at any time that made the institution abusive and dangerous. And he says, so the Negro, and this is a quote, so the Negro in the North is free, but he cannot share the rights, pleasures, labors, griefs, or even the tomb of him whose equal he has been declared. There is nowhere where he can meet him neither in life nor in death. In the South, where slavery still exists, less trouble is taken to keep the Negro apart. They sometimes share the labors and the pleasures of the white men. People are prepared to mix with them to some extent. Legislation is more harsh against them, but customs are more tolerant and gentle. And this, of course, is de Tocqueville writing a Democracy in America. So that particular part of this in the Old North, in New England, Pennsylvania, New York, these are areas that are often pointed to as being, well, these people were much more tolerant. And we know that legislation was passed, put into effect to try to alleviate some of these problems in the 1840s and 50s. But as he points out, they weren't always followed. And uh, de facto is just as important as de jure. So um, these are, you know, big issues. And I could go on with this essay, but you can go read it yourself at slavenorth.com. I could, I could read about the old Northwest, but we've already hit 30 minutes. And so um, I don't want to go too much longer on this. And uh, the question was, you know, what was life like 
Why don't we talk about this? Well, because it's an uncomfortable position for a lot of people who want to simply blame the South for every evil in American society. Every problem, every ill in American society goes back to the South, and it simply isn't the case, as the historical record shows. All right. Hope that answered your question. Uh, for those that have asked this question, I'll see you tomorrow for the last episode of 2022 on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.